If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Romans 11, and we're going to look at Romans 11, 7 through 15 today. And you'll want to follow along, especially, uh, this is an interesting passage. Uh, I think what I'm going to do is after we get through Romans 11, break for a little bit. I really uh, I received some feedback on my comments last week. I do want to do a sort of basics of Christianity series, and um, I'm really excited about it. I, I was apprehensive last week, and now I'm, I'm ready to go. So that'll be, that'll be fun. So we're going to get through Romans 11, though, because it's really part of, the, part of the bulk of the book in terms of like theological density. So I want to make sure we get, get to it. All right, Romans 11, 7 through 15. Let's read that. Romans 11, verse 7. These are the words of God. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? but life from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word and the message that you have for us today. We ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us in our fellowship here. We want to learn the ethics of your law so we can be challenged, so we can be edified, and of course, so we can be strengthened for the task that you have placed before us. So uh, please do help us in this endeavor. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned last week, Romans 11 is very much a tough passage to navigate because in a lot of ways it's it seems to be overwhelmingly technical. He keeps talking about Gentiles and the Jews and unbelief and belief and there's all these layers to it and it seems very technical. It seems so far removed from our particular cultural context as well and of course there is also tremendous debate on what he means at the end of the chapter when he says and thus all Israel will be saved. So you may not think, wow, what's controversial about that? It's very controversial. There's a lot of sides to the debate. And of course, I will save that controversy for when we get there. But despite its difficulties, we know that it is Holy Scripture. It is part of our Bibles and we have the Holy Spirit to help us. So that's what we need to do is to rely on him. Also, (laughs) uh, this is kind of a funny statement that Peter makes. If you remember that Peter himself believed that Paul was difficult to grasp at times, (laughs) even says as much. Uh, you know, Peter and Paul being friends, of course, and ministry co-partners and co-laborers. But Peter says, yeah, he says some crazy stuff. Uh, Not crazy, but very, very hard to understand. So if Peter had a hard time, I guess we're in good company. So nonetheless, there are some crucial themes and there are some crucial topics that are found in the chapter as a whole, and they ought to help us learn and apply certain things. And so obviously that should always be our aim. So if you can remember from previous messages, I, made, I said that Romans 9, 10, and 11 
is very much a theologically dense portion, portion of Scripture. They, those three chapters go, go together. If you're referencing Romans and you have various sections to point out and so on, but usually 9, 10, and 11, that's like the bulk of it. That's like the middle, the crescendo, the zenith of the whole thing. It's very, very um, theologically packed with a lot of things. But it is, however, very much connected to the things that Paul has already stated earlier on in the letter, especially Romans 2, when he already talked about the Gentiles and the work of the law written on their heart, and of course, Romans chapter 5, when he goes into, after the discussion of, of Abraham in chapter 4, he gets into chapter 5 and talks about Adam, and, and so Jesus is the second Adam and all these different themes. So it's not like it's unrelated. You can get to Romans 9, 10, and 11 and think, wow, this is like he just decided to, you know, belch out a, a dissertation with footnotes and all. And it's not really that. I mean, it is that, but it's very much connected to the rest of it. You might say that he's building a snowball argument. It's gaining steam. It's going down the hill. It's growing and growing. And we get to just sit and watch it unfold. And it is a, a wonderful portion of Scripture. But at the end of the day, the main issue, it seems to me, is that Paul thought himself to be in a position to correct the Roman church on a variety of issues that they were dealing with. Remember, um, Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome, and so it's like half our church gone. <laughs> Just people are no longer permitted to be in a particular place. And then they end up coming back under Nero before Nero went crazy. And so now there's like all these issues to sort out. And so Paul feels like he has to deal with these, these problems. And one of the things they needed was basically a grasp on the nature and the purpose of the covenant. And what does the covenant of God do? The covenant that Christ has given us, what does it do? And it, it brings people together. Uh, if you watched um, our, uh, our new president and his speech, he kept talking about unity and I'm just thinking the whole time, but around what? <laughs> around what exactly? Because you are pontificating on a worldview that I think is evil. Mm -hmm. How am I supposed to unify with you on that? I, I can't. And uh, aside from its general incoherent thought, and uh, which is to be expected, uh, I, I'm just sitting there thinking, man, this is incoherent. I, there's no unity possible with this type of ideology, this, this socialistic, communistic, um, paganism, you know, to throw these words at him. But I was also thinking, well, what does unify people? It's Christ. It's his covenant. <clears throat> so Paul thinks that too. So Gentiles were becoming believers by faith in the Messiah, and that was happening all over the world in remarkable numbers. The disciples were going out, they're missionaries, and people are responding, and they're repenting and trusting Christ, and it's this wonderful thing. And of course, many Jews who were scattered in the diaspora and that's in reference mostly to their being scattered um, through the, through the uh, um, end of the Greek Empire and the rise of the Roman Empire, and they were Jewish people everywhere, and you had to have a certain amount of men to have a synagogue, and there were synagogues all over the known world. But they were scattered in the diaspora, and guess what? Some of them were coming to faith too. Some of them were believing. But <laughs> many were not too. Many were not. This presented, obviously, a whole host of concerns for Paul, so he sees fit to, to deal with this issue here in Romans 9 through 11. Now, uh, we just read Acts 13, so if you recall what was said there, I'm, I'm, I think it illustrates perfectly what Paul is speaking of here. Gentiles were coming to faith, 
In Acts 13, verse 43, we learn that many Jews did as well. They were following Paul and Barnabas, of course. That's where a lot of their ministry was, in the synagogues. But the other issue is that we had devout converts to Judaism involved as well. So these were Gentiles who became Jews who then became Christians. Confusing, right? There's a whole category of people. But we also have in verse 45 this. But when, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They were reviling him. So a lot of, the word jealousy is obviously part of the theme here. He, he mentions it twice here in Romans 11. So um, let's just walk through the passage together real quick, and then we'll make some application. So Paul writes in verse 7. He says, What then? That is, based, based on what was just said about the remnant who had been chosen by grace, here is the conclusion. What then? Here's the conclusion. He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, he says, but the rest were hardened. So he's thinking categorically. You have, you know, Israel is used in many different ways in this section, but he's speaking specifically. There's a portion of, quote-unquote, Israel. The elect of them did obtain it, but the rest were hardened. The rest were under the judgment of God. So there's, there's unbelieving Israel, and then there's believing Israel. Those, those are the two Israels. One is true to the covenant. One is false. The former were mostly Jewish people. Again, there were some Gentile converts who came to become Jewish in terms of taking on circumcision, taking on the, 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 the rite of passage, if you will, in order to become a Jew. They were, they, were, they were mostly people in the first century. They rejected the Messiah and they stayed in their unbelief. You know, think Caiaphas, think the religious leaders and the people who followed them. The latter, though, the believing Israel, consisted of those Jews and Gentiles who believed on Christ by faith. So, you, again, you have believing Israel, unbelieving Israel. Unbelieving Israel, those who rejected the Messiah, they were under judgment. But then you have believing Israel what we call the church, we'll get to that, they were another group who put their faith in the Messiah and they were the fulfillment of the covenant promises. So, and I, I said this before and we'll, we'll kind of go into it a little bit today, but just remember, we're not waiting around for all of the Jewish people to go back to the Israel that we know of today in the promised land and then somehow that's going to usher in the end times. That has nothing to do with this at all. So those in unbelief, those who rejected the Messiah, they failed to obtain the righteousness of life found in the Torah. They failed to obtain it. And that's what they wanted to do, but of course they didn't pursue it by faith in the Messiah. So you can obey the law of God, but then you can obey Christ and then obey the law of God. And those are two different things. So the elect of Israel obtained it. God had granted them grace. The people who followed Jesus, they were given grace. The rest were hardened in judgment. Now, we should note that the hardening here was the result of their prior sin. They didn't harden themselves. They, they were hardened. They were hardened by God as a judgment because of their iniquities. And by the way, just a side note on judgment given our nation's current malfeasance. Whenever God delays judgment, and God does delay judgment, think of Nineveh, right? Other examples in Scripture. Whenever God delays judgment, 
Those who do not use that time and that opportunity to repent are storing up wrath and thus God hardens them. Okay, so we're, for whatever reason, it's not enough what we have going on right now. There's still more iniquity to dump in that cup. So we're not there yet. And the reason that God does this is because of that, that, that cup is not full, and thus God's judgment will come, and it will be proven to be, in all respects, just. No one's going to say it was unjust. If God decides to drop the hammer on our country right now, no one's going to say, well, that was unjust. All you need to do is look at the abortion issue. That's one of many examples of, of issues. Uh, another side note. I believe that we are working with AD 70 judgment here in this passage when the Roman Empire would come and they crushed Jer the, the Jerusalem, they burned the temple, they, they, millions were dead. I think that's what we're dealing with here. Um, but as it stands, unbelieving Israel was hardened and they were hardened so that God would pour out his wrath justly. And if AD 70 wasn't that moment, I don't know what is. So I think Paul's got an eye towards that. I think he knows. At any rate... Verse 8 is a quote and an echo from several passages, specifically, though, Deuteronomy 29.4. He says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Sort of sounds like when Jesus was telling the parables and um, people didn't understand. And he says, well, yeah, I don't want them to understand, <laughs> essentially, quoting Isaiah. And God is sovereignly working in that. But Isaiah 29 says something similar. But the point is, Paul is, he uses this judgment passage to describe the current problem with his unbelieving kinsmen. His kinsmen in the flesh, were, many of them were not obeying the gospel. They were not following Jesus the Messiah. They are asleep. They are judicially blinded by God. They cannot see their way out. And the reason... Listen, the reason God hardens is either to secure his just judgment or make sure the sinner knows that the only way out is faith. I've, I don't know, you've probably met people in your life, family members maybe, but people who are just seem so hardened to the gospel, just so hardened, they, you can tell that they're, you just can't get in. So either God in that moment is doing it for two reasons. One, he's, they're storing up wrath and he's going to make sure that they know no one, who, no one who's sentenced to hell in the future is ever going to be, there's never going to be a question of if it was just or not. They're going to know. But the other reason that that person may be hardened is so that they get to the point where they, the only way out is up. That's it. You're at the, drop the shovel. You can't dig any further. God's grace is the only way out. So either way, though, God is just and he's good and no man can, of course, say otherwise. Another citation from the Old Testament comes in verses 9 through 10. In verses 9 through 10, this is a reference to David in Psalm 69, 22 and 23. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This issue of a table, think of a feast. One can only feast for so long until... He must reckon with God. You can only eat, drink, and be merry so long until you have to, be, you have to reckon with God. It is the re retribution of God that dismantles and disarms those who reject the Messiah. And if this is the case, and it is, then Paul makes a, he asks a pertinent question in verse 11. 
So I ask, did all this hardening is going on? They're blind. They can't see. God's doing it. God's hardening them. Here's the question. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Has unbelieving Israel stumbled over the stone, fallen on their head, and will all perish on the ground from this gashing head wound? That's the idea, right? Stumbling over the stone. They've tripped and fallen. Have they fallen so hard that they hit their head? They're dead. There's no hope for them at all forever. And Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. They've tripped over the stumbling stone. The Gentiles have taken that stone and that's the foundation of their new building. The Jews who have fallen in Paul's day were supposed to look at that and say, I'm jealous of that. In other words, part, part of the purposes of God in doing what he has done is redemptive. It's always redemptive. Uh, Joe Biden is our president because it's an re- issue of redemption for God. It's, it's part, of, part and parcel to the plan, right? They didn't stumble, and therefore that's the end, so now we get to just go home. No, unbelieving Israel and their judgment opened up the door for salvation to expand and grow to the Gentile world. And the reason that this happened the way it did why did, the, why did the religious leaders reject Jesus? Why did many of the Jews st- stick in, in their unbelief? Why? This is the answer. Was to make them jealous. The Gentiles got the gospel. It was meant to make those who rejected the Messiah jealous of it. Now, it seems like an odd statement to make, but rest assured it's, it's not. God being patient with his vessels of wrath is part of the plan to bring the riches to the Gentiles. The rest of the world matters too. Kids, listen, and adults for that matter. But it's sort of like when you look over and you find that brand new toy that you got, maybe for Christmas or for your birthday, some other kid's playing with your shiny new toy. And you look over and you think, whoa, 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 that's my toy. You're not allowed to play with that. (laughs) That's mine. And you start to feel a little, you feel a little jealous. You may be jealous about it. How dare they do that, right? That's my toy. This is the type of jealousy we're talking about. To Israel belonged the covenants. To Israel belonged everything. The law was given to them, the calling and so on. But God opened up those gifts and gave it to the rest of the world. And the reason he gave it to the rest of the world was to make them jealous about it. That was the point. They're the ones not enjoying the gifts when Israel should have been enjoying them all along. Israel should have said, yes, Jesus is our Messiah. Yes and amen. But part of the plan of redemption was that they would reject him. That's what Paul, or excuse me, Peter in Acts 2 says, look, you guys crucified the Messiah, but that was part of the foreknowledge of God. That was part of the plan. And part of the plan is, is now the Gentiles, remember when Jesus says, look, man, you know, um, the prostitutes and the sinners and the drug addicts, they're getting into the kingdom long before you they're supposed to be thinking, what have we done that they get to go in and not us? But that's why. They were to be jealous. God's grace was being poured out on the rest of the world, and unbelieving Israel was supposed to look at that and say, wow, that's our stuff. They took our car. Now they're on a joyride. That's our car. Why did they do that? So that was what Paul is getting at here. 
And, and one also might say that the point here is that God loves saving unbelievers, and he does so often in peculiar ways, making them jealous. <laughs> Interesting thought. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Cryptic verse. Let me explain. They stumbled... Unbelieving Israel stumbled, and that turned out to be blessing for the rest of the world. What might it mean then if they're brought to faith? They tripped over the stone, blessing went to the world. What happens when they get up, and instead of tripping over the stone, they embrace the stone, and then they build their life on that stone? What happens then? It's a, it's a mega blessing for the world, right? It's even more of a blessing. Which means Jewish people today by the way, like the rest of the world, need to be discipled. Israel as a nation today out there in the Middle East, as it stands today, needs to be discipled, just like Pakistan, just, just like Azerbaijan, just like all these countries in Africa. Everywhere needs to be discipled. They need to be taught the way of Christ. But Paul here is talking about the fullness of inclusion of the remnant, by the way not some future group of Jewish people who believe. He's talking about the remnant, their full inclusion, the elect, the people, not the nation of Israel that it needs to be restored on some prophetic timetable. Okay, the elect need to be brought into the church, the people of God. By the way, Galatians 6, Paul calls the church the, quote, Israel of God. They are the Israel of God. Believing Israel, unbelieving Israel. Embraced the Messiah, rejected the Messiah. There's our elect, there's a remnant there. Paul's preaching the gospel to bring them here. That's what he's speaking of here. Verse 13 and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Right? Listen up, Gentiles, I'm talking to you. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul wanted to leverage the jealousy issue. He knew full well that bringing the nations into the Messiah would make some of them jealous. And, and if some would, je would be jealous, then some of them would be saved. They would be jealous enough to want what they have. But Paul rightly believed that God had tasked him with this mission to take the gospel out into the the gospel of the Jewish Messiah out into the rest of the world, into the non-Jewish world. And part of that plan was to bring some of his fellow Jews to salvation. He knew when he would go into the synagogue that there would be some of the elect there, that they would have to hear the gospel and they would repent. And by the way, the phrase there in your Bible there where it says, my fellow Jews, that's actually literally, if you want to take the Greek literally, it means my flesh. This, the eye of Romans 7, it's the kinsmen, his brothers in the flesh. He wants to magnify his ministry in order to make, quote, my flesh jealous, his people. He's preaching, he's provoking, he wants them to be saved. And then finally, look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will that mean for their acceptance but life from the dead, resurrection? The apostle, I think here, is making a striking remark, and he's arguing, of course, from the lesser to the greater. Unbelieving Israel is hardened in judgment to make them jealous, but it's also to bring salvation and reconciliation to the world, to the Gentiles. But here's the thing. 
if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, to the nations, then what happens when they repent and believe? Resurrection. Life from the dead, the new birth, the valley of the dry bones brought to life. That's Ezekiel 37. I want to speak to that issue, so let's unpack the passage some more. It's interesting that Paul speaks of resurrection here. Kind of a random place to talk about resurrection, life from the dead. In some ways, it's a cryptic reference, but in other ways, I think it's part and parcel to his entire argument. Think for a moment about what he has said in verse 15. A small rejection meant a large reconciliation. An acceptance is akin to resurrection. What is Paul doing here? Remember from last week, for those who who were there, um, I stated that Jesus is Israel. Jesus chose his 12 disciples. Those are the new 12 tribes, so to speak. And he's reconstituting Israel. Jesus is Israel. Jesus embodied and accomplished everything that Israel was to embody and accomplish. That was his goal. He was the new Israel. He was the perfect, sinless Israel, the, the Israel who was always supposed to obey the law of God, who was always supposed to act justly and righteously, who was always supposed to be wise. That's, Jesus is that Israel. And lest we forget, he was the covenantally obedient Israel. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was from Abraham. Uh, Matthew and Luke spend a lot of time in their genealogy, making sure that you know he's from Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. But what Paul is getting at is the fact that Jesus was rejected and set aside. And that is, he was hoisted up on a Roman cross and put to death. So think of what Paul means here. Rejection, reconciliation, acceptance, resurrection. Think of those concepts. What did Jesus' death and his rejection signify? The healing of the nations, right? That's what it signified. It meant the reconciliation of the world. So we need to note that this rejection isn't their rejection of the Messiah, but God's rejection of them. So think of it this way. Jesus is Israel, okay? The perfect Israel. Unbelieving Jews rejected him. His rejection and thus his death was a rejection of the gospel, was a rejection of God. But that rejection was the very thing that brought reconciliation to the world. As a result of their rejecting who it is they're supposed to be, God is rejecting them. He's hardening them and he would judge them in 40 years. You see the connection? So Paul is talking about Israel, but he's talking about Jesus. His rejection led to reconciliation. What is his acceptance? Resurrection, life from the dead. And this is further backed up by what Jesus says in Matthew 21, 43. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the religious leaders who represented the unbelief of Israel would be rejected. They would be cast aside, just like Jesus was. Jerusalem would be judged in AD 70, but note to whom the kingdom would be given. He doesn't say that he's taking the kingdom away from Israel and giving it to the Gentiles. That's not what Matthew 21, 43 says. He says it goes to a people producing its fruits. These are the two Israels that we talked about last week. The kingdom would go to the people of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom are people who are producing fruits. And who's producing fruits? The believing in Jesus by grace through faith people. Jews, Gentiles, that's who it is. So God's, quote, rejection of Jesus on the cross, in a manner of speaking, 
is Israel's subsequent rejection. They are actually getting a taste of their own proverbial medicine. You reject the Messiah, you are rejected. You are judged. You won't have his judgment on the cross, you will be judged accordingly. That's the issue. So Jesus was Israel on the cross, which is why the placard above his head, remember what it said? King of the Jews. No, 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 this man said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, I've written what I've written. It's done. It was in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, Greek, king of the Jews. It's, it's, it's obvious. It's right there. This is what a picture of a real king, a real Israelite is supposed to do. Serve and save his people. That's what Israel is supposed to do for the world. And either they will believe it or they will not, but they need a death. And, uh, and either it'll be Jesus' death accredited to their account or their own judicial death in judgment as a result. So the point is, they're casting away and their rejection, that's unbelieving Israel, they're casting away, their rejection was very much like the death of the Messiah. Jesus simply enacted it out. And this was the judgment that awaited them, which could have been avoided had they trusted Christ, but they did not. But when the elect of God, who come out of unbelieving Israel into the believing Israel, the church, it's like a resurrection Sunday all over again. That's the point he's making. They stumbled, reconciliation to the world. What will their acceptance be? What about that person who was so hard-nosed, just like Saul was, a Jewish man in the first century, hated the Messiah, can't believe all these you know, sociopaths are following this cult now, what happens when that person converts? Paul is that person. It's a resurrection. <laughs> it's a celebration. It's death to new life. And that's why Paul connects it to, to Christ. And that's the point he's making in verse 15. Now, remember Romans 4.17? You don't have to turn there. Paul cites Genesis 17.5. He says this, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, talking about Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I said this back in Romans 4, whenever, that, whenever we were in Romans 4. I don't even know when that was now. But I'll say it again. Abraham's true family consists of those who've been brought back from the dead. Paul means Jewish converts here and those who were brought out of nothing, Gentile converts. You've been brought out of nothing. If you're a Gentile and you believe in Christ, you've been brought out of nothing. So the, the family of faith consists of those in the Messiah, and there's equal ground with no special badges, no hierarchies, no statuses, there's no super-Christian class. We are all in the Messiah. Now, a, a, a few final thoughts of application. Jealousy itself, if you think about jealousy has the ability to go two different ways. It'll go one of two ways. Jealousy can lead to full-blown envy and bitterness in your heart, the hardening of your heart towards someone, or it can lead to humility and repentance. Those are the two ways jealousy can go. But it will always be one or the other. Kids, you can be jealous of someone, and either you will be humbled by it and appreciate it for what it is, or you will harden your heart and you will be mad and worst case scenario, you try to take the toy back using physical force. And then you have a different problem for your parents to sort out. But either way, Paul uses this concept of jealousy as an evangelistic tool. And I think, frankly, we should adopt it. So that's what I'm running on. 
Rival worldviews in the public square are always vying for attention. They're always vying for attention. That's been happening right now as everyone seems to be shouting at each other. Uh, seems a bit calmer at the moment now that the election's over and, and, and um, all these things have been put in place as, they were, as it is. Some, of course, of these voices are louder than others, but we should know that all anti-Christian worldviews will always naturally form some sort of power religion. They will always try to be powerful. They will try to force you into something. Coercion will always, always, always be the tactic of the left. It will always be that way. And that's never going to go away, not anytime soon, until you know, they as an ideology repent and believe the gospel. But since we are Christians who've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, we're going to make, need to make sure that our biblical tool of evangelism is just as loud but our tactics are different. In other words, we're going to have to be both servants and warriors, and you can be both. And despite what the pietists and impotent Christians say, you can be both. <laughs> Consider the Great Commission and our role in teaching this county how to act, how to function, what to think, and how to do business. Rather than thrusting ourselves into the power religion where we just want to gain control and power and, and um, you know, just force people into these things, we want, to, we want to build stuff in a responsible manner. We want to build a social order that reflects the gospel of the kingdom. As with that presupposition, that means you reject certain things. We reject public school education. Um, we reject fiat currency. And, and um, it's something Chris and I have been talking a lot about lately is we need to embrace counter-economics. How do we undermine the system? How do we um, provide for one another, use what we have, and, and figure out ways to build wealth in that manner? And, and of course, we rely on each other in order to do all of it. But part of that mission here is to make the rest of Fauquier County jealous. To make them jealous. This means that we have to enjoy the blessings of God and act like it. Act like it. Don't fake it, but just actually enjoy the blessings of God and act like it. In Acts 13.50, the unbelieving Jews were enraged by Paul and Barnabas, and they wanted to run them out of town. Paul and Barnabas were there establishing the lordship of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, and some people just didn't like it. They didn't like it. So, verse 51 says that they shook the dust from their feet and they moved on. And the very next verse reads this in verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They had just been run out of town because no one wanted to believe the gospel, or very few. And what does the Bible say? They were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is what we're after. This is what we're after. We want to enjoy the blessings of God, building upon the promises of God, and be filled with the Spirit and with joy. Because where the Spirit is, there is joy. That's Christian Civilization 101. And we do this so that jealousy may occur. And we want jealousy to occur so that unbelievers will repent and join us at the dinner table. That's what we want. Building a Christ-honoring culture, following the law of God, and inviting people to come and be healed is part of the grand mission of the gospel. So we don't set aside the law of God. We, we embrace it. We read it. We learn from it. We start to, to learn what is just and what is unjust. We train our senses to discern what is good and what is evil. And we start with self-government. 
We govern ourselves by the gospel. We govern our families and our churches by the gospel. And when that happens, unbelievers will see the folly of their worldview. And perhaps if God is gracious, they will repent and believe. As we seek to plant, advance, and sustain Christian civilization, building strong families, businesses, getting behind things like the Freedom County Project, it is important to know that all along the way, we must be diligently chipping away at these things. Chipping away. Um, Doug Wilson calls it productivity. <laughs> chipping away little by little, day by day. It's easy to talk about this stuff. It's very easy. As, as, um, as post-millennialists, we love to talk about worldwide revival and regeneration and the success of the gospel and the victory of Christ and, and all of these things. That's great. We, we love the thought of the gospel healing the nations. But let me tell you, the real work is done in the day-to-day. And this is a hard concept for us to grasp sometimes. The real work is done behind closed doors when you're at home teaching your kids the Christian worldview. That's real work. The work is done there, and of course it's supposed to be done out there as well. But chip away, we must. We have been established by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and this establishment pushes us out into the world, declaring the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness. So what we want to do is build a culture that honors Christ right smack dab in the middle of a gnarly culture of death and socialism. That's what we're trying to do. And the Andrew Torba, the CEO of Gab, he posted this uh, a day or so ago. He said, the plan is simple. Build. Build our families. Build our churches. Build our local communities. Build our own internet. Build our own economy. Build around the communist culture until it inevitably collapses and we are all that is left standing. He said, reform your heart, reform your mind, reform the world. This culture of death that we are currently having to endure, patiently endure, has no future. No future. They can't reproduce. They, they continue to want to, to uh, treat the fruit of a healthy marriage as being um, uh, cells to discard at their convenience. There's no future. So the thing we must do is build and make everyone jealous about it. I think that's what Paul's point is here. He, he magnified his ministry, though. His, his flesh, he's talking about his own people, but it applies to the rest of the world. I think Torb is exactly right. That's, that's what we want to be doing. As resurrection people, we want to do this so others are proven to be jealous. So they are constantly saying things like, what are those Christians up to now? What are they doing today? What is their response to this? How are they going to function? Why are they eating together and having so much joy in their fellowship? How is that? Their kids are different. They know what epistemological self-consciousness means. <laughs> kids, if you don't know that, we'll, we'll work on that one. But like, they're not teaching that in public school. They're trying to dumb you down so that you just become a slave of the state. Well, so let's build and then word of caution, by the way, don't envy the world. Don't envy the world. Don't envy the power religion of the world, which is built on likes and shares and money and oppression and all these things that suck you in to, to, to it. The Bible explicitly tells us not to be jealous of the world. Proverbs 23, 17 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Don't be impressed with any common grace fruit that the unbelieving world musters up in spite of themselves. 
Don't be envious of sinners. Continue in the fear of the Lord. Be faithful today so that the world is jealous of us. So may we, like Paul, be about the jealousy of the nations as they peer into the life of the church and see that there's something much better going on here than what they have going on out there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your spirit is among us and helping us to learn and apply a passage like this. Um, we ask and pray, uh, Father, that you would bless the efforts of those who, like Torbar, are trying to build, trying to build something, a, a, a citadel here in the middle of a, of a communist, um, well, not paradise, but that's what they think it is. Um, we ask and pray for your help for our families, for the, mom, for the moms and uh, who, who are uh, leading the charge and building the home and, and, and dads who are out um, working and, and, and seeking to build wealth for the kingdom. And, and we ask and pray for your mercy there. Uh, would you help us? I, I pray for our kids here today that in the next 10 years or 20 years uh, that they would have such a passion and a vision for the kingdom that they would build and, and, and plant and advance and sustain Christian civilization, that you would bless them with wealth that they would um, um, not just work for someone, but employ someone and be people who are, who are uh, very much involved in the affairs of our community. Uh, we don't deserve your favor, Father, that's for sure. Uh, we are a blood-soaked nation, and we interpose on behalf of our nation and ask for your forgiveness. Uh, so would you be among us? Would you work among us? Um, we want to do it all with joy in the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen.